Now tonight we move from the realm of shadow, type, and prophecy into the full sunshine of the presentation of the Son of God. In the Old Testament we've been looking at that which speaks of him on every page, but speaks of him in shadows, in, in, in types, in symbols, and in prophecies, all looking forward to the coming of someone. And you can't read the Old Testament without being aware of that constant promise running through every page. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Now, when we open the four Gospels, that someone steps forth in the fullness of his glory. As John says, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I love the Gospels. They're to me one of the most fascinating sections of the Bible and of perennial fascination to my own heart, because there you see Christ as he is. And remember that what he is, what he was, is what he is. And what he is, is what you have, if you're a Christian. And uh, all the fullness of his character and being and life is available to us. And we only learn what those resources are as we see him as he was. And that's why the gospel records are so important to us. It's often been wondered why we have four Gospels. And uh, there's very good reason for this. It's interesting to note that each of these Gospels is a development of an exclamatory statement that's found in the Old Testament. Four different times, and only four times, in the Old Testament is there an exclamatory statement made about the coming Messiah introduced always by the Word, Behold. In one of the prophets we read, Behold thy king, O Israel. In another place we read, Behold the man. In a third place we read, Behold my servant. And in a fourth place we read, Behold thy God. And these four statements are amplified and developed in the four Gospels. Matthew, the gospel of the king. Mark, the gospel of the servant. Luke, the gospel of man, the son of man. And John, the gospel of God, the presentation of the son of God. And uh, these four give us four aspects of our Lord's character and person. They're not, strictly speaking, autobiographies, or biographies, that is. They are really uh, sketches about the person of Christ. Eyewitness account written by those who knew him personally or those immediately associated with him, with them. And uh, therefore, they have the ring of authenticity and they carry to our hearts that first and marvelous impression that our Lord made upon his own disciples first and then all the multitudes that followed after him. No more amazing character has ever walked among men than the person of our Lord. It's perennially a fascination to men. And as you read the gospel accounts, I hope something of the fascination of that breaks upon your own heart as you see him stepping forth from these pages, revealed by the Spirit to your own heart 
and you see him as he is. Now, the first book of the New Testament is Matthew, and therefore it's the place where most people start reading the Bible. I think more people begin reading in the New Testament than in the Old, and that, therefore, would make Matthew perhaps the most widely read book in all the world. In fact, Renan, the French skeptic, said of this book, this is the most important book of all Christendom. In fact, he said, the most important book that has ever been written was the Gospel of Matthew. But it has its critics, too. There are those who claim that this book reflects nothing but the early legends of the church, which grew up around Jesus, that they're not historical, but they're only legends and myths that uh, gathered around the person of Christ, and that this book was not actually written until the 4th century A.D., and therefore we are, can be, are very uncertain as to how much is really true. And others of them, uh, the critics, make the claim that this is only one of many Gospels that were circulated. Now, it's true that there are other Gospels beside our, the four that appear in the New Testament. There's the Gospel of Barnabas, for instance, and the Gospel of Peter. And other Gospels, you'll find them gathered in our library in a book called the New Testament Apocrypha, if you'd like to read them. But uh, uh, the critics say that it's only mere chance that these four Gospels survived. And uh, there is a, a, a legend that began with a German theologian named Pappus in about the 16th century, who said that, all, that the way the Gospels were selected, they gathered together all the many Gospels that were circulating at that time at the Council of Nice in 325 A.D. and threw them all under the table. And then one by one they reached in and picked out four, and those happened to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're the ones we have today. Now, the foolishness of such a claim as that is evident to anyone who reads the Gospels with, with thoughtfulness. They're, they're stamped, imprinted with the fingerprints of God. The very pattern of this book, these books reflect the divine imprint. And you can't read them and compare them with the Old Testament without seeing that they, are, they, they come from an inspired source. And you merely have to compare them with the with the apocryphal Gospels to see how foolish such a claim is. Now, as you know, this Gospel was written by Matthew, otherwise known as Levi, the tax collector. He was a publican, a tax collector. The publicans were those men who took the taxes from the people. The republicans are those who give them back. <laughs> he was probably given the name Matthew by our Lord himself. The name means the gift of God. And uh, to call a tax collector by that name obviously indicates he was converted. And so it was perhaps our Lord himself who designated him Matthew, just as he changed Simon's name to Peter, and uh, perhaps other of the disciples as well. Tradition tells us that Matthew lived and taught in Palestine for 15 years after the crucifixion, and then he began to travel as a missionary, first to Ethiopia, and then to Macedonia, and Syria, and Persia, and finally he died a natural death in either Ethiopia or Macedonia. This is not certain at all, but it's one of the legends or traditions that have come down to us about Matthew. Now, the 
the book is a is a, a dates from obviously a very early day really uh, the idea that it was written in the fourth century is pure poppycock because there's much evidence that that dates it in the earliest in the early part of the first century it's quoted for instance in the well-known Didache, which is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, uh, that dates from early in the second century. And the Gospel of Matthew is quoted there. So it obviously uh, precedes that. And Papias, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, says that Matthew composed his Gospel in the Hebrew tongue, and each one interprets it as he is able. That's the statement he makes. And this was confirmed by Irenaeus and Origen, two of the early church fathers, all of who were acquainted, well acquainted with the Gospel of Matthew. And even in the first century itself, we have Jewish voices that confirm this. Two Jewish uh, people, Gamaliel II, who was a prominent rabbi, and his sister, Emma Shalom, which incidentally means a woman of peace, though she was far from that, uh, pronounce a curse on the Christians in these terms. They say curse, a curse on the readers of the evangelistic scriptures of the New Testament. Now, the only evangelistic scriptures of the New Testament that was extant in their day, about 45 uh, or 50 B.A.D., was the Gospel of Matthew and, uh, and perhaps the Gospel of Mark. So that the, probably the date of writing of this letter, uh, this gospel, is about 45 A.D. or 50 A.D. Probably first written in Hebrew and then translated in Greek. Now, that's enough of introduction to it. I want to get into the message of this book. The, uh, uh, there are many who feel that the Gospel of Matthew is one of the most difficult books of the New Testament to outline. But I would like to challenge that. I think there's no book in the Bible that lends itself more easily to outline than the Gospel of Matthew. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit has himself imprinted the outline into the book. This occurs in many of the books of Scripture. If you're observant, you can see these marks. And the major divisions of Matthew are given to us by the repetition of a particular phrase that appears twice here and marks the book or divides the book into three sections. There's first of all an introductory section which takes us to chapter 4, verse 17. And there we have the first occurrence of this phrase. If you're following me, you can note these. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that marks a major turning point in the argument and presentation of this book. Then you find this, a similar phrase occurring in chapter 16, verse 21, which introduces the third section. Chapter 16, verse 21. We read, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. That's the first mention of the crucifixion in Matthew. And from here on, it's the aim and point of the development and presentation of this book. 
Now, there are subdivisions given to us in the same way, by another kind of verse, another phrase. And you'll find the subdivisions marked for you by a verse which appears uh, four different times, five different times. And the first occasion is in chapter 7, verse 28. At the close of the Sermon on the Mount, we read, When Jesus finished these sayings, that's the phrase, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Again, in chapter 11, verse 1, you find another uh, subdivision indicated. And when Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Look at chapter 13, verse 53, where you have another subdivision indicated. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Then in chapter 18, verse 35, we read, I'm sorry, it's really chapter 19, verse 1. The next verse. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And again in chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to cruci be crucified. Now, you notice that each one of these introduces a, a, a complete change of direction, a new subject, and these mark the divisions of this book. Now, I want to dwell briefly, without uh, going into the mechanics of this anymore, on the developing message of the book. The first division from verse 1 on through chapter 4, verse 17, where we've noted this first uh, dividing mark coming, is all about the preparation of the king for his ministry. Matthew is the gospel of the king. Behold, your king cometh unto you, the prophet Zechariah had said, meek and lowly and riding upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. That prophecy was fulfilled, as we saw, in the triumphal entry when our Lord entered the city of Jerusalem in exactly that manner. And it's, God, it's Matthew's task to present him as the king. Now, it opens, therefore, with the genealogy of the king. Every king has to have a genealogy. The ancestry of a king is the most important thing about him. He has to go back to someone. He has to be in the royal line. And therefore, Matthew opens with that exhaustive and somewhat exhausting uh, genealogy that traces him back to Abraham and David, and from David uh, on back to uh, to uh, well, beginning with Abraham and tracing him on down to his father Joseph, that is his stepfather, who is called the husband of Mary here. And Joseph was in the royal line of David. It was from Joseph that our Lord gets his his royal right to the throne, because he was the the heir of Joseph. And it was through Mary, who was also of the royal line of David, that he gets his, 
his uh, genealogical right to the throne. His legal right comes through Joseph. His hereditary right through Mary. For Joseph, of course, was not really his father, but Mary was really his mother. Now, after the first chapter, you get the baptism of our Lord. And by the way, the first chapter relates him to earth. His genealogy ties him in with the kingly line of David. In the second chapter, you get the baptism of our Lord, which relates him to heaven and his uh, uh, credentials, his authority as the heavens opened. And in an amazing way, the Father's voice spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. There's the royal line according to the heavenly standard. And then in the uh, third chapter, I'm sorry, the baptism comes in the in the third chapter, his birth in the first two chapters, his baptism in the third. And in the fourth chapter, you have the testing of the king. This is the experience of his temptation in the wilderness where he's related to all the powers of darkness, where hell is loosed upon him. Now, the testing of our Lord is the key to the Gospel of Matthew. He's tested as representative man. He goes into the wilderness as the Son of Man, and he's tested as to whether he can fulfill God's intention for man. Now, man is made up of three divisions, body, soul, and spirit. And it was on that threefold level that our Lord was tested. You'll notice, first of all, he was tested on the basis of the body. The dominant passion of the body is self-preservation. And our Lord's temptation came on that level. Will he continue to be God's man, even when he's, he's tested by this extreme challenge to him on the level of self-preservation? After 40 days and nights, he had not eaten. And now the temptation came subtly to him. Change these stones into bread if you're the Son of God. Preserve your life. But he, he insists on walking in the will of God despite the intensity of this pressure. What would you have done after 40 days of fasting and someone offered you bread? Then he was tested on the level of the soul. That is, the dominant expression of the soul, passion of the soul, is for self-expression. On this level, we all want desperately to reveal ourselves, to show what we can do we put it, to express ourselves. This is the drive, the urge that lies behind the function of the human soul. And you remember, it was this testing that saw our Lord taken up to the top of the temple where he was given the opportunity to cast himself down and thus capture the acclaim of Israel and the people, to show what he could do, to uh, capture the public attention, this is the urge for, uh, for status, for manifesting the pride of life in human heart. But he proved himself true to God, despite the pressure that was upon him in that way. And then he was tested in the, in the, most, in the deepest and most essential part of his humanity, in the spirit. The dominant passion of the spirit is worship. The Spirit is always looking for something to worship. 
That's why man is essentially a religious being everywhere. Because the spirit in him is craving, crying out for an idol, someone to follow, a hero, something to worship. And it was on this level that the devil came to him and said, All these kingdoms of the world will be yours if you'll fall down and worship me. And our Lord's answer, remember, it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And so he passed the test. He revealed himself as in fully and adequately man as God intended man to be. Now he turns around in chapter 4, verse 17, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to put this same test to the nation Israel. Israel had been chosen of God through the centuries to be his channel of communication with humanity. And they had regarded themselves as, uh, as favored people. And now the nation is to be put to the test in the Gospel of Matthew whether they can pass this same test that our Lord did. And this is the whole essential story of Matthew. He's tracing how the Son of God, how the, the King, uh, God's King, came into this world. And he offered himself to be the King of Israel, first on the level of the physical, then on the level of the soul, and when he was rejected on both of those two levels, he passed into the deep realm of mystery of the human spirit. And there, in the darkness and the mystery and the blackness of the cross, he worked out the redemption of man that would begin that redeeming work that would capture man again for God, body, soul, and spirit. And it begins with the spirit. That's why... The work of Christ in our own hearts, though we may be attracted to him on the level of the, of the body, on the supply of physical need, or on the level of the soul, the need for someone to master us, to lead us, to uh, someone to follow, will never really change us until it has reached into the level of the spirit, into the place of our basic worship, where we have essentially committed ourselves body, soul, and spirit, ultimately all we are unto him. And then the change begins to come. Now you see this worked out through the Gospel of Matthew with the nation of Israel as the recipients. Now let me trace these for you just quickly. The first ministry begins as we saw in chapter 4, verse 17, with that uh, uh, mark. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then follows the Sermon on the Mount, where you have the presentation of the kingdom and the laws of the kingdom. This covers 4, 5, 6, and 7, or the rest of 4, and 5, 6, and 7. And in these rules of the kingdom, in the Sermon on the Mount, you have an amazing emphasis upon the physical life. Notice this as you read through this the next time. This is one of the most penetrating, one of the most incisive messages ever set before human beings. But it approaches us on the level of our ordinary physical material life. There are two sins dealt with, murder and adultery, physical sins. 
The life of God is illustrated for us in the realm of giving alms and of praying and of fasting, physical acts. Uh, God is offered to us as one who would so care for us that we would not need to think of tomorrow, how to be fed, how to be clothed, these worries that come to us on this level. And our Lord is saying, if you discover me and receive me as your king on that basis, you'll discover that I'm the answer to all your physical need as well. And he's offering himself to the nation and to us on this level. Now, this is followed by a, a, a section on miracles. From chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, you have a series of miracles, the miracles of the kingdom. And these are simply illustrations of the benefits that our Lord can bestow on the level of the physical. Now, there's no spectacular display here, but it's a, rep uh, a representation of our Lord's power over everything affecting the body, disease and uh, uh, demons and death, and his authority in this realm as the king. And this, in turn, is followed by a section on the parables of the kingdom, where the rejection of the kingdom is declared in a mystery form, and uh, uh, it's apparent by this time that the nation is going to reject our Lord's offer of himself as king on this physical level. And so a new word appears in chapter 20, in chapter uh, 11. Chapter 11, verse 20. He begins to utter the word woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to those who have not believed. And pronounces judgment upon the nation on this level. And this is followed then by the mysteries of the kingdom in chapter 13, where the parables are given with truth hidden underneath a type or a symbol. And then a section that is simply instruction to individuals, just those among them who will believe, who will receive him on this level. And you'll find this is the first place the church appeared. Because the church, the message to uh, the church is always addressed to us as individuals. We individually come to Jesus Christ. And here comes the first hint that our Lord is going to build the church. You'll find it in chapter 16. And all of this section, by the way, beginning with 1354, verse 54, through 16, verse 20 all has to do with bread. If you read it through, there's the feeding of the 5,000, chapter 11. The questions on what defiles a man in chapter 15, or chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 15, the questions on what defiles. And then the incident of the woman who came and asked for crumbs from his table, and he said the bread belongs to the, uh, to the sons of the kingdom, chapter 15. The feeding of the 4,000, in chapter 15, the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in chapter 16, and finally the revelation of our Lord's person to Peter himself in that uh, wonderful time when Peter was given the first insight that here was indeed one who would go beyond the level of the physical into the depths of man's spirit. Now, beginning with 
chapter 16, verse 21, we've already noted again this division. You have the second ministry of our Lord to the nation. And this time on the level of the soul. He's offering himself on this level. And uh, he, his first revelation is to the disciples only viewed as the nucleus of the coming church, beginning with chapter 16, verse 21, through 18, verse 35. And here you have the transfiguration and the first intimation of his death, and then is followed, as we have in the first section, by the parables of the, of the king. And these are addressed first to the disciples and then to the nation. And all of them are parables uh, presenting him as the king who has the right to command and to determine the character of individuals. Nothing said now about their physical lives, but about their soulish lives. Are they willing to follow him? Are they willing to let him shape and mold their lives and their character? And it, here we have the triumphal entry, which becomes the judicial entry when our Lord judges the nation and passes into the temple and stops the offerings and drives out the money changers. And once again, you hear the word woe coming in. In chapter uh, 23, he turns once again in verse 16, verse 13, Woe to you, scribes! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Woe to you, blind guides! Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And all through that chapter, it like the knell of death, this word woe rings out again and again. And this is followed by a section in chapters 24 and 25 where we have instructions to individuals again. This time what we call the Sermon on the Olivet Discourse. That is, the instructions to the believing remnant of what to do until he comes again and how the world will develop and how world history is going to shape up and what will happen in the intervening years, and what forces will be loosed upon the earth, and how uh, the, the forces of darkness are going to take uh, God's own people and test them and try them and shake the foundations. And uh, they can only stand as they learn to reckon upon the in, inner strengthening of the Holy Spirit. And then finally the last section where we have the betrayal, the agony, the trial of the Lord Jesus, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. When our Lord, in the mystery of, of darkness, passed out into the blackness of death, and there, uh, alone, unaccompanied, forsaken by his friends, he entered into a death grapple with the powers of darkness. And in the mystery of the cross, he laid hold of the forces that have mastered the human spirit. And he broke them there. And in the, uh, in, the, in the wonder of the cross, in the mystery of the cross, he vanquished the powers that have been against mankind and broke them. And as Paul puts it later, he mastered them and made an open show of them, triumphing over them and leading them behind him as a conqueror would lead a train of captives uh, in display before people, uh, showing himself to have mastered the forces that have mastered the spirit of man. And in the crucifixion, 
You see him standing as a, as a single prisoner, a lone prisoner before Pilate in judgment. And uh, then passing out into the darkness of the garden. And from there to the cross, to the whipping post. And then to the cross where he was nailed up to die. And in the anguish and the haze of that awful uh, uh, six hours of darkness. He grappled with these forces of darkness and vanquished them and became the victor. But the only crown he ever had as the king was a bloody cross. And the only, or it was a crown of thorns. And the only throne he ever had was a bloody cross. And the only scepter he ever wielded was a broken reed. But this is followed, as you know, by the story of the resurrection. When he broke through into the realm of the human spirit. Up to that time, uh, in effect, God had never been able to move into the spirit of man. Oh, by faith he could. But now... The way is wide open. Man is, the, the way into the very center of man's being is open. And as we come to know the Lord in our spirit, we discover that the very, the worship of our hearts are, is given to him there. And the spirit is the key to the mastery of the whole man. When you get a man's spirit, you have all that he is. And by means of the cross and the resurrection, our Lord has made it possible to pass into the very holy of holies of man and to dwell within us. And the great message then of the gospel is that uh, God is not uh, up yonder on some throne. He's not waiting in some distant judgment hall to pass judgment upon us. He's ready and waiting to pass into the center of any hungry, thirsting person's heart and there begin to minister the blessings of his own life, his own character, his own being, pouring them out for us. When the king is enthroned in the life, the kingdom of God is present. And that's the message of Matthew. All through this book, it's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, heaven doesn't mean someplace out in space. It means the kingdom of the invisibilities, where God reigns in the spirit, and that kingdom is at hand in the presentation of the king. And the great question, of course, that Matthew leaves with us is, is Jesus Christ king of your life? Have you only received him as, as a savior for the body or as a savior for the soul? The question that Matthew brings before us is, has he become king? Has he penetrated to the spirit? Has he mastered your heart? Has he laid hold of the worship of you as an individual so that he is the one single most important person in all the universe to you? That's when he becomes king. And you'll notice that's the fulfillment then of the very first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, but thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy strength and all thy mind. And the result will be, you'll love your neighbor as yourself. Our Father, we pray that as we look at this gospel of the King, we may see the majesty and the glory and the greatness of this one who has come. This one who has come to master us, who is not interested in just helping us, 
but who has come to, to direct us, who hasn't come to take sides, but has come to take over. Lord, we pray that thou wilt make us understand this and yield to him the throne of our lives, that in this very moment, as we worship before thee, our hearts may be saying to thee, Lord Jesus, come and reign in my heart. Be the king over every area of my life. Master me in all the aspects of my being. Plant thy bloody cross as a throne in my heart and rule unchallenged. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.